Well, good morning. I think I think Tom's got me on. He'll he'll be waving at me if it's not working. So we're going to complete Luke 23 today, and so that leaves one more chapter. So obviously, we just got a few more weeks in Luke, and we will be done with this. Um, I'm not quite as slow as Ken, but I'm pretty slow going through this. Let me open our time in, in prayer, and uh, we'll, we'll dive into this chapter. Father, thank you for the salvation that you've provided for us through your Son. As we study this morning this passage from Luke of the suffering that, that your Son endured on our behalf, I am just so thankful for your grace. You redeemed us, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, but simply because you loved us. We thank you for that redemption that you provided through your son. I pray that our time this morning would be led by your spirit, that you would um, use this time to... uh, to edify us and glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Luke 23. So the last couple of weeks we've talked about the, the trials of Jesus. He went through three so-called religious trials and then three civil, although they were not very civilized, trials. And now... They've convicted him wrongly um, and are going to crucify him. Beginning in verse 26, it says, And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So, so what, what's the deal with this guy? Why, why did they grab this Simon, and why would he need to help Jesus? What had happened to Jesus right before this? Well, he was very, very wounded, very, 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 very bloodshed and wounded. Yeah, he'd been beaten. He'd been, they called it scourging. He'd been scourged and beaten, and, and this, they say carrying the cross, it likely was the cross beam. <laughs> We don't know for sure, but, you know, if you watch the movies, they always have them carrying the whole cross, but I'm not sure that that was the case. It may have just been the cross beam, but even that would be extremely heavy, and it's a fair distance from, from where he was tried to where he was crucified. It was close to a mile, I think. So, not a trivial thing. So, Simon, Simon, it says he's from Cyrene. Okay, that is the, the capital of this Roman province of Cyrenica. I tried to pronounce that, and I did not do very well. But it, it's on the northern coast. It's modern-day Libya. So it was on the Mediterranean coast. And he probably was Jewish, and he was in Jerusalem for the Passover. Um, Jesus probably collapsed from carrying the cross. He couldn't carry it any further. And so they drafted this guy. I, my speculation is he looked like he was a pretty hefty guy. And okay, we'll grab him. He can carry the cross for Jesus. We don't really know exactly what reason they picked him. But Jesus probably couldn't carry it any further. So they, they got Simon to do it. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. So what are these people doing that are following Jesus? It's a a pretty large group of people, probably. It says they're mourning and lamenting. On one of my... 
trips to Romania where I was visiting one of the small villages, um, we were doing some like house-to-house visitation and stuff, and, and a funeral procession came by. And there, they don't have a hearse. They, they had the, the casket on a, on a cart pulled by horses, and the peop, you know the crowds are just walk, the crowd is just walking with it, and they're, they're singing. And, you know, it's, it's a funeral procession. And that's what I picture when I think of this, this mourning and lamenting. It's like a, a funeral procession. They're taking this man, Jesus, and probably the two criminals with him to execute them. Um, it's a large crowd. It, it says there, there's women so they were, they're following him. Some of these probably had praised him on Palm Sunday as he came in and then changed their tune crying for, for him to be crucified because he didn't fulfill their, their expectation. They wanted him to be the conquering king that would free them from this, the Roman oppression. But that wasn't his role at this point in time. They might have even been professional mourners. That was common at that time. Um, and elsewhere in scripture, it calls it singing a dirge. It's like this, this grief-stricken song. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry. So what is the main point he's making in these comments? He's using several different illustrations to make pretty much the same point. So you're mourning for me because I'm going to die, but you're going to wish yourselves dead coming too. And yours is going to be worse than mine, right, is what he's saying. He said, look, you can weep for me, but what you're going to endure is going to be even worse. He's telling them that their judgment was going to be worse than what he was going to experience. It would be worse than if they were barren. Okay, if you were barren, a barren woman in that society was an outcast. He quotes from Hosea 10.8. You know, it's basically you'd be better off buried by a, a landslide than, than what's going to happen to you. What's the difference between green and dry wood? Steve, you're an engineer. What's the difference? Flexibility and strength. Yeah, green. What happens when you try to burn them, though? The green has moisture in it, right? So it doesn't burn as well. The dry, I remember as a kid, we would, we would collect the, the Christmas trees that people put out in their trash. We'd, we'd go pick, you know, half a dozen of them up or something, and we had a, a place out in the woods where we camped, and we would take them out there, and you'd throw one on the, on the fire, you better stand back. It's, it's like exploding because it's so dry. And that's the point is that green wood 
doesn't burn that well. It, it's inhibited from burning hotly because of the moisture in it. But dry wood, is, it burns quicker and hotter. So he's saying this judgment for them is going to be more severe than what he would experience. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So what's this scene look like when he's going to be crucified? There's, There's three of them, right? One on each side. Um, the place is called the skull. Um, in Aramaic, it's Golgotha. In English, that's Calvary. That's where we get the term Calvary. These criminals, there's speculation they may have been accomplices of Barabbas, but we don't know that for sure. Um, the three of them are crucified. Jesus is in the middle. What does crucifixion include? They basically nailed their, probably through the wrist, they put a spike on each hand, and then they, they put their feet together and, and, and put a spike through there. Um, It's typically preceded by the scourging we talked about earlier. Crucifixion was designed to cause extreme pain that was prolonged, and it was humiliating. They typically, the victim was crucified naked in a very public place. They wanted it to be an example for people that, okay, we want to avoid that. I don't want that to happen to me, and as well as humiliating the victim. They were nailed to the crossbeam and then the post. To breathe, they had to, to push themselves up in order to, to get some of the weight off the diaphragm to where they could take a breath. So this is not a smooth post. It's probably pretty rough. So they're, they're rubbing their back that had just been beaten on this post. Sometimes when they talked about breaking their legs, they would, they would break the legs so they couldn't push themselves up anymore and they would suffocate quicker. It hastened death. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they cast lots to divide his garments. What's his focus? He's about to be crucified. And he's thinking about other people. I find this just incredible that he would be interceding for those that are nailing him to the cross. Other translations have was saying instead of said. So it wasn't just a single instance of asking their forgiveness it's more continuous he's thinking about others and not himself and it says and they cast lots to divide his garments Why, why is that Noteworthy. It's a fulfillment, yeah. You see, in 
In Psalm 22:18, it says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus fulfilled numerous Old Testament prophecies with his, his crucifixion. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. How did they treat him? Like I mentioned a minute ago, I mean, crucifixion was designed to humiliate the victim. And that's what they were doing. So what were these religious leaders mocking him for? What did Jesus told him he was? That he was the Messiah, right? He was the Son of God. And they're, they're claiming, well, they're convinced he can't be the Messiah if he's being crucified. That they just can't understand that the Messiah needed to first be the suffering servant before he could be the conquering king. They don't. They don't understand that. The soldiers are mocking him for this title of of king of the Jews. Um, Their their offer of sour wine would actually be helpful to him because it would help alleviate the pain a little bit. Um, He's suffering this humiliation from the crowd. What would his followers be thinking at this point? We are in trouble, right? It's not going as they expect, is it? Yeah, this is not what I signed up for. I I thought he was the Messiah and now he's dying. And what was it going to do for them? Well, likely it's going to lead to even more intense persecution, right? You know, if if they crucified him, how can I try and stand up for him without risking the same thing for myself? This looked like a helpless situation to them. They thought their leader was the Messiah, and now he's dying. If he couldn't save them himself, how could he, they rely upon him? They didn't fully understand the role of the Messiah. One of the criminals who were hanging railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So he's mocked even by one of the criminals. In fact, um, From Mark and Matthew, we learn that both criminals at one point mocked him.
But then Luke tells us what the other criminal said. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So what, what is this other criminal, what's his response to Jesus? That's a response of faith, right? He recognizes there's a difference in this man. He really is who he said he was. He rebukes the other criminal. I mean, he acknowledges his guilt and Jesus' innocence. And he seeks a place in the kingdom of God. He believes in Jesus despite the fact that Jesus is dying next to him. He believed Jesus was establishing a kingdom, even though he's dying. That is, that's extreme faith. How does Jesus respond to this extraordinary faith? It's very positive, right? He tells him, you'll be with me in paradise today. So what do we know about this paradise? What is paradise? If you think of going, I'm going on a vacation to paradise. Maybe you think of a Caribbean island. I don't know. It's, it's a delightful place, right? That's really kind of an easy way to describe it is this is, is a delightful, pleasing place. Um, I think the reason it's a paradise is because of who you're with. My wife and I went on, our honeymoon was, was in the Caribbean. And uh, it could have been a wherever, and it wouldn't have mattered. It still would have been a delight because of who I was with. And that's what makes this a paradise. It's because of who you're with. You're with the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 22 describes what the kingdom of God will be. It, they may be the same. I'm not going to say they are for sure. But this paradise and the kingdom of God may be similar. From Revelation 22, we know that the tree of life is there. And it actually has a different fruit every month which is, from, from a persp our perspective, it's pretty amazing, but from their perspective, it's probably nothing new. It, the throne of God and Jesus will be there. It's free from the curse of sin. There's no night because of the light that God provides. Um, there's an et eternal time of worship. It's a, it will be an amazing place, a place of delight. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. So what's the significance of three hours of darkness? Yeah, 
Now, growing up, I always thought, oh, well, this was uh, an eclipse or something. Well, as I read some commentaries on this, um, the Passover was a time when the moon is full. So you wouldn't have an eclipse then. And also an eclipse doesn't last three hours. So this was something more than just, and this wasn't a natural event. This was supernatural. But why darkness? What does light represent? It's God's presence, right? So why, why did God remove his presence? His son took on our sin. And when he took on our sin, that separated him from the Father. See, the Father is holy and can't be in the presence of sin. So when Jesus bore our sin, he was separated from the Father. In fact, uh, it's the full wrath of of sin that, that Jesus took. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lava Sabathani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was recorded in Mark, by the way. What, what's the meaning of this exclamation? What does it mean to forsake someone? To forsake is like to abandon um, or desert someone. By the way, this is the only time Jesus didn't refer to him as father. See, Jesus, when he bore our sin, he was separated from the father. He had to forsake the son when the Son bore our sin. <coughs> Going back to Luke, it says that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Sorry. Yeah. Go back to that verse. What do you mean? Can you explain? The, the forsake part or what? Which yeah. part? So when, when Jesus bore our sin, he felt forsaken or abandoned by the Father. He had to be separated from the Father. That's my point. Because the Father can't be in the presence of, of sin because he's holy. I would think that the fact that it's a quote from Psalm 22, starting out the psalm, it's a, it's a reference to the to the, the totality of the psalm, not a, like, like if you take the first line, it sounds like he's saying, you've forsaken me, God. But if you read the rest of the psalm, it's like it comes around to basically saying, I know you haven't forsaken me. Ultimately, he will not, yeah, he will be restored. And that's what's about to happen when the, the veil of the, the temple is torn. So you would say you would say that, that God the Father was separated I, and did actually forsake the Son on the cross? During that three hour time period is what I'm my point. But at the end of the three hours, obviously Christ is is restored with his Father. No, I would I wouldn't I wouldn't say the Trinity was broken at all. It's just that when Jesus 
when he took on our sin that separated him from the Father. What about from God the Spirit? Like, is he also separated from the Son? Does he remain with the Son until, the, until Jesus gives up the Spirit? Well, what are the attributes of the Spirit? Same as the Father, right? And the Son. That he's holy. Jesus gave up his... When he took on our sin during that time period, he was not holy because he had our sin. Now, it wasn't his personal sin, but he bore our sin. He was our propitiation, our substitute. So do you say that when Jesus was being crucified on the cross, that there was a lapse in his divinity? No, I wouldn't say there was a lapse in his divinity, but he but he took on our sin as our substitute. He didn't give up his, his divinity. He didn't give up his deity, but he took on something that separated him from his father. But as a human, possibly feeling the separation, as a human being, the separation of, that, of the sin. Yeah. Yeah. You look like you got a comment you want to make. Well, I don't, I don't, I just disagree. <laughs> yeah. How, how would you, how would you explain the forsaken? I, I would say he's quoting the first line of the psalm in the same way that, that we might quote, uh, quote the first line of a, of a song that we sing to, in reference to the entirety of the song, but. If, if we were to say something like Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, and we don't continue on, well, we understand what we're saying is that Satan, right. wretch like me, I once was lost. Was now, like, it's, the, it's an expression of the totality of the song to quote the first line. So, so then the first, what's... quotation of the first right. line of the song is simply to bring the, all who read it and hear it on to the, the conclusion, Jesus is not being forsaken. His... The... The uh, going, right. this is all to fulfill Psalm 22. The going out of the gospel is going to spread to all the earth. I mean, you get to the end of the psalm, and it literally is talking about Christ's death on the cross being proclaimed even to the Gentiles. It's a wonderful thing, but it, but I don't, I think it's it's just wrong to say that, that God the Father was separated from God the Son. Uh, so, what was the significance of the three hours of darkness then? What do you mean by the fellowship was broken? Well, he, had, he looked away from him, is what it said. Does it say that somewhere in the Bible that he turned his face away or something? I don't know. I just The question that I have is Jesus also say, my God, my God, why have I forsaken me? What is also like? What does that mean? And I point what they meant to describe God. My God, my God, why have I forsaken me? Because we know that from the beginning they were never separate. At that moment, they separated. Maybe that, that's what the darkness does. That's the interpretation that, that I've taken. Now, I, I understand there can be other ways of, of interpreting it. But... No, I'm not asking to be, I'm just yeah. like, I'd like to look it up. And, I, from studying the Old Testament, I, I remember that when they were talking about the Seth, Messiah's prophecy, that the, the prophecy is about the Messiah, that at the end he will be wounded and he will be forsaken. Also, it's pretty common in the Old Testament to have a line of prophecies and then put them on something else and then another line of prophecy or prophecies of first advent and the second advent being very close together. Um, so yeah. just because there's a passage in the beginning of you 
to the one who would rescue him from death, and God heard his prayers. Well, I'm looking at the wrong trans, but he was heard because of his piety. So it's like there was something he was afraid of or didn't want to happen, and God heard him, and I don't quite understand what that would be because he did have to be crucified and he did have to die. Right. But maybe in a sense God resurrected him. He wasn't like totally. I'll study this some more and get back with this next week. Um, I had not heard that viewpoint before, so it, I'll uh, I'll investigate it further. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So, what's the significance of that? What did the curtain separate? It separated the, it's actually, I think I pushed, there it goes. It separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And that was God's, where God's presence was. And so the only time um, a person could go in there, the high priest was allowed to enter the holy of holies once a year on the day of atonement. Um, So this separated man from God because of man's sinfulness separates him from God. Matthew records that the veil was torn from top to bottom. Now, we think of a veil as like, okay, it's really thin. This is described as the thickness of your hand, which is like four inches. This is not a trivial curtain. This is a big, heavy curtain. Well, separating from top to bottom shows it's an act of God. And I think this is the first sign that our sin debt was paid in full. We could now be in the presence of God. We were no longer separated from God because the sacrifice of His Son had been accepted. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So what do we learn from these final words that Luke records? There's actually other passages in other Gospels that have other words, so we're going to talk about those a little bit as well. So he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. I mean, he's, first of all, it's proclaimed in a loud voice. He wanted people to hear what he said. His work on the cross was complete. And he was putting himself, he's trusting his care to the Father. It's a quotation from Psalm 31. Actually, we're going to read that as our, it's our, part of our scripture reading this morning and then following his statement Jesus died Um, in John it records more in John 19 it, it says after this Jesus knowing that all was now finished said to fulfill the scripture I thirst A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what other details do we see from John? He fulfills... Other prophecies from Psalms, he he seeks to quench his thirst. And then he says, it is finished. Uh, The Greek word for this, and I'm sure I'll mispronounce it, is 
Tetelestai? Good, I did it right. Amazing. That's, it's the same term that's used when a debt is paid. In fact, they found it on, on um, pa- or paper documents like a bill of sale that they found from that time period where they wrote Tetelestai on it, that it was paid in full. Our sin debt was paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing left that we have to do to be forgiven. He completed our salvation. There's no work that we have to do to earn God's favor. We have to believe in what Jesus did for us. In Matthew, it it says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We've talked about that. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were released and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection They went into the holy city and appeared to many. So what's the other detail there? There was an earthquake, right? And a mass resurrection. And then these, yeah, the bodies of, of dead saints. That's what it means, dead. When when it says who had fallen asleep, they were dead, were raised. So this earthquake occurred, tombs are opened, believers who had died were resurrected. It says they went into the, the holy city, went into Jerusalem and appeared to many. We're not given an explanation for what this really looked like. Other than it's a supernatural thing. I believe the timing of this shows that their salvation was completed by Christ on the cross. So then they could be resurrected. But again, that's, that's kind of my view of it. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So how did the centurion respond? He recognizes this man was innocent. I mean, I think it's, it's an act of faith on his part to proclaim who Jesus really was. It's repentance on his part. He had crucified. He had helped crucify Jesus, and now he's saying this man is innocent. It, it's an act of he's. It's a repentance on his part. What about the crowds beating their their breast? Well, that's a that's a sign of of grief. Um, it could be they're beating their their breast as. As a, as a sign of repentance for what they had done to, to, to condemn Jesus, or it just could have been sadness over the cruelty of his death. 
we, we don't really know exactly what, they're, what was driving their grief. Yeah, mourning, grief, yeah, yeah. That's what it sounds like. Um, but is it, is it mourning over what they had done or is it mourning over what he had experienced? And that's what we don't really know. Yeah. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to, excuse me, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So who is Joseph? Says he's a member of the Sanhedrin. But he hadn't consented to what, to the condemnation of Jesus. And he takes this bold action of asking for the body. He takes this personal risk of asking Pilate for the body. He's he's associating himself with Jesus. Um, From John's account, we know that he had a helper, Nicodemus. He wasn't only on his own. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Why is, there appears to be some urgency in to burying Jesus. Why, why the hurry? What's that? Deuteronomy tells us why there was a hurry. From Deuteronomy 21, it states that when someone is executed and hung a tree, they must not be left hanging overnight. So he needed to be taken down. The next day was the Sabbath. They were not to perform work on the Sabbath, so they needed to make sure they took care of the body today. He's wrapped in cloth with burial spices and laid in a tomb. From Matthew's account, we know that the next day, they rolled a stone over the entrance. And they stationed guards to guard the entrance to make sure the body wasn't stolen. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So they had, they had further plans. They wanted to come back and, and complete the preparation of the body. They wanted to put more spices on it the next day. Not the next day, but the, the follow after the Sabbath. So what we would now call Sunday. Uh, from the other Gospels, we learn who these women are. It's Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, Salome the mother of James and John, and then Jesus' mother Mary. They saw where his body was laid and they planned to return with more spices and then they rested on the Sabbath. So what are some things we've learned from this? Well, sin separates us from God. Mankind was separated in fact with the original sin, were kicked out of the garden, separated from God's presence. 
because of sin. But Jesus' death paid the full sin debt for believers. He reconciled us with God. So the application is pretty simple. Which of the two criminals represents you? It's one or the other. Every one of us deserve. The penalty for for sin is death. We all deserve God's just judgment for sin. So we're either the criminal who rejects Jesus Christ and will suffer eternal separation from God, or we're like the criminal who believed and joined with Jesus in paradise. If you have questions about your salvation, please talk with with some of us. We would love to help you understand what Jesus did for you on the cross. Any other questions or comments? Good discussion this morning. Thank you, guys. Let me pray for our time. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he took our sin debt in full and and paid it for us so that we could be redeemed, we could be restored in our relationship, reconciled with you. Father, thank you for the cross, for bearing our punishment so we could have life with you. Father, help us to share that good news with those that you've placed in our life that need to hear about Jesus Christ, that need to hear what he did for them on the cross. We pray this in the name of our Savior, the the risen one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.